0: Hi, welcome to the Phoenix Athens podcast. Our mission at Phoenix Athens is to make disciples who experience, enjoy, and display God's love and glory. Our goal with this podcast is to provide a way for you to learn and grow with us as a church body. If you're more visual, you can watch these sermons online on our YouTube channel linked below. We hope this episode encourages and edifies you. Thanks for tuning in. So good morning. Welcome to Phoenix uh, let me let me catch you up. If you have, or if you're just joining us, the last two weeks ago we we started walking into this this talk about spiritual warfare, which man is is such a is such an important topic for the the life of a believer. It is so vital, but it's one of those things. It's almost like in most churches, like the spiritual gifts, it's just overlooked, not taught on well, and not 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 really. It's just not a thing in, in a lot of places. And we want to bring it to the forefront, not that we would again, what everyone has been saying this morning, not that we would be bound up by fear, but that we, we would know who we are and the authority that we have as believers and so week one, Nate did this kind of thirty thousand foot view of spiritual warfare, kind of laying the foundation that there is a spirit realm. He had to kind of just tons of details and then last week, if you were with us, we kind of got a little closer and and we took a look at the enemy. I, I felt like it was um If you've ever played sports, uh, you know, when you, well, in football or baseball, sometimes you watch film, uh, similar to what probably the Georgia Bulldogs are doing today or tomorrow as they get ready to play the Auburn Tigers, they're going to sit in a room like this and they're going to, gosh, they're going to sit in a room like this and they're going to watch Auburn's game against whoever they played and they're going to be like, look, see number 13, he stinks, like let's exploit him, he's not a good player, or they seem to always give up these type of plays. And that's what Nate did to the enemy last week. I mean, he just exposed the enemy. It was like watching film on the enemy. He was talking about the devil and demons and the activities that we see in Scripture. And he was just did such a graceful job of reminding us that we have victory, that there is nothing to fear, that he's defeated, he is under the foot, like there's nothing to, to be afraid of. Unless, of course, you ignore what Scripture says about suiting up in the full armor of God. And we're going to talk about that today. I know a lot of you are excited about what we're going to talk about today. I'm not, uh, because I'm the one having to talk about it. Um, but there has been this, this question that goes throughout the church uh, on possession. What is spiritual possession? What is spiritual oppression? What does that look like? And we're going to dive in to that today. So we'll be talking about... Um, possession, spiritual oppression, and then we're going to open the door to some things that, or bring some clarity at least, to some of that language that I just used that I think uh, we need to change. And so uh, I don't know about you. Has anybody ever, I didn't grow up in a believing family, so I could pretty much watch whatever I wanted. Has anyone ever seen The Exorcist? Unfortunately, too many of you. Okay, good. For those of you that are like, "Uh uh-uh, don't. Like, do not watch it because if you're anything like me, that became uh, kind of the seared-into-your-mind stereotype of, of, of deliverance uh, and casting out demons, and you want nothing to do with it, right? If you watch that movie, head spinning all the way around, like total domination of the person. Uh, I mean, it reminds me, there's moments in that movie of like the demoniac, this, this, this supernatural strength. That kind of thing freaked me out. I'm just going to be straight up with you, and I wanted nothing to do with that kind of ministry, it was, it was uncomfortable for me, uh, but what I did not realize is that uh, extreme demonic control was rare rather than typical, uh, and I'll just say that I have done more research for this particular sermon, in, in pain, out of pain, than any sermon that I've ever preached, uh, and I cannot pack it all into one sermon. I'm not going to do that to you, but I will promise to send out all the scripture, for everything that I talk about today, if, if there's a question, I mean, you know how we, we're a family, you can, you can kind of raise your hand, we'll talk, about, we'll talk it out. But I will send you everything that I have in the midweek email. So if you're not on that email, get on that email. So the truth is that not all demonic attack of the believer or the influence is equal. Demons operate at varying levels of influence. Uh, the worst case scenario, and at least extreme uh, demonization found in scripture, is in Mark 5. You guys remember this. When they go to the, the country of the Gerasenes, there is this guy who had a legion of demons, which scholars believe is about 6,000 demons, that indwelled in him. He was found in the tombs. You guys remember, he was basically naked. He was cutting himself. He was harming himself. Nothing that they tried to hold him down with, none of the shackles uh, they used to bind him, could work. He was supernaturally too, too strong. He broke those. Uh, and because he was possessed by, again, a legion of demons that were... That's believed to be about 6,000. This man was probably described in such detail because he was the worst case of demonization that Jesus and his disciples encountered. His freedom, though, demonstrated Jesus' absolute authority to displace the darkness. And that deserves an amen, Amen. right? His freedom, if you remember, they found him crazy. Everybody leaves. They come back, and he's in his right mind at Jesus' feet. And what did the people do? They're so freaked out by this guy's transformation, they literally tell Jesus to leave. They're like, hey, we don't know what, who you are, but get out. Like, that dude was one way, and now he's not. And then you remember the demoniac. He, try, he begs to get back in the boat. Right? He's like, no, I want to go with you. you. You freed me. And he says, no, you go tell everybody what I've done for you. So it revealed what is possible when light confronts darkness. Even in this man who changed from uncontrollable and insane to completely normal the story reveals how freedom becomes a testimony of jesus to share the gospel of the kingdom however it is not an example of the average person that has demons now i'm going to answer some questions i know that are just you're waiting for me to answer but just bear with me i want to build a bit of a stage and a foundation now that so mark 5 the demoniac is the most extreme demonization we see in scripture right but I would argue, argue, again, that there's varying influences of demonic uh, influence in our lives. So we'll go to uh, one like Mark 8. This is when, uh, this is when Jesus foretells what he's going, what's going to happen to him when the authorities arrest him. You guys remember what Peter says to him? Peter takes him off to the side and rebukes him, which, by the way, rebuking God is never a good thing. <laughs> but do you remember what Jesus, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me. Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Those weren't Peter's thoughts, but were put into Peter's mind. That is what temptation is, entertaining thoughts that aren't ours. When Satan disguises his suggestions as your thoughts and ideas, you are more likely to accept them. This is his primary deception. Peter believed that those were his thoughts, And he took ownership over them, and this is a great example of how temptation works. But let me be clear: if you remember when we sent out this email, uh, uh, preparing for the spiritual warfare uh, series, we just said, "Hey, what questions do you have?" And I'm about to answer one of those questions. I want to be clear about what I just said about Peter. I don't believe that that demons can read your thoughts. Someone sent a question. I don't know who you are, but it said, "Can the enemy or demons read our minds?" And let me just address that. I don't believe that demons can read your thoughts. Based on 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, which says, you cannot know another person's thoughts, uh, to whoever asked that question, that is a God power, right? And only he possesses that according to his will. It is not a demonic ability. So for whoever had that question, rest assured, I don't believe, based on what I see in Scripture, that demons or the devil can read your thoughts. Just go to 1 Corinthians 2, 11, and, and wrestle with that. So you can see from the demoniac in Mark, uh, Mark 5 uh, to Peter in Mark 8 that, that demons operate in various levels of influence in, the, in our lives, in the lives of people. And just let me give a quick fact about demons. I heard this being talked about from a few people. Uh, when we read about demons and demonization or possession, we only read about demons indwelling someone. Not on top of someone or around somebody. Jesus never cast a demon off of someone or away from someone. He cast them out of people. He, Jesus cast, cast demons out of people. So from what we read in Scripture, demons indwell people. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, let's let's just the way I've, I've fr- framed this uh, this talk on possession oppression is just by asking questions. Like, I'm asking the same questions you're asking. I lay them out, and then I just go, and I I try to dissect Scripture and find everything I can from from the full counsel of God. What do you have to say about this, Lord? And one of the first ones is, what is meant by spiritual possession or oppression? What do you think spiritual uh, possession means? Ownership. Who said that? Good job, Luke. Anything else? What about oppression? What is What comes to your mind when you think of someone being oppressed? Harassed? Maybe, maybe forced or threatened to do something. You. Like if you don't this, this will happen. Yeah, forced or threatened to do something. Harassed. Held back. Held back. Someone said influence controlled. Yeah. Yeah, those are good. So I just want to define possession. I will spoil alert. Possession is not a biblical term. So I'm defining it from... The dictionary, not from the Bible, uh, which will come, I I will circle back to this in just a second. I typically don't try to give you definitions from the dictionary when we're talking about biblical things, but possession is not a biblical term. So we'll come back to that in just a second. But possession, by sake of definition, is the state of having or owning something or someone. And the definition of oppression, uh, it is actually used in this way once in the New Testament, in Acts 10, verse 38 but to exercise harsh control over one or to use one's power against one or prolonged, cruel or unjust treatment, which that particular type of oppression we see all through the Scripture where the Israelites were oppressed by these people and these people and these people. And you see all types of oppression, but the type of oppression we're talking about we're going to get to here in just a second. So the question that a lot of you have asked, which let me just, let me just throw it out there. Can you be possessed as a believer? If you're lost today and you know you're lost, I'm going to be speaking really to the believers this morning. I, I, this, is, this is regarding those who belong to Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, I beg you to. I implore you uh, by the end of the service that you would come to know him. Because you'll find that there is a great identity and there's a great power and protection in Christ. And that's not a fear tactic. I'm not trying to sell fire insurance this morning. I'm just, I, I want you to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. But to the believers, let me just say this quickly. You cannot be possessed by the devil or by a demon. Let me say that again. You cannot be possessed by definition by the devil or by demons. Possession insinuates ownership, and the devil cannot own anything that the Lord has bought and paid for. And we'll look at that scripture in a minute. That you, beloved, those of you who belong to Jesus, you have been bought but with a price right you have been bought and paid for you are the owner of you is jesus christ not the devil possession again is not biblical that's why you cannot be possessed the devil does not own anything he may be called the lowercase g god of this world but he does not own this world remember what nate said last week the devil is a created being he does he owns nothing and he has been defeated so if someone tries to convince you that the devil possesses something, it's unscriptural. Believe me, I have studied all of it to the best of my ability. But possession, again, is not biblical. So if you have something to write with, you enjoy some of these facts. Again, I'll send this out in the midweek. It was The idea of possession was popularized by the 1611, 1611 uh, version of the, the, the King James Version of the Bible. Which, unfortunately, possession is just a poor transliteration of the Greek Greek word, uh, diaminizomai. Can you say diaminizomai? Daminizomai. For whatever reason, it was it was it was transliterated possess or possessed, and it's just a poor translation of this word. Uh, Daminizomai is to be under the power of a demon. It's used 13 times in the Gospels. And in every case of demonization in Scripture involving uh, someone under the influence or the power of a, of a, of, of a demonic spirit, it, it uses the word demonizomai. So instead of saying, I'm, I'm starting this up front on the sermon so we stop saying possessed. So instead of saying demon-possessed, which is not biblical, I would, I, the, every scholar and, 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 and Bible scholar that I've read would say demonized. That is the, the correct And the more accurate way to say uh, someone being indwelled or under the power of a a demonic spirit, they are demonized. So let's get this idea of demon-possessed out of our vocabulary. Are we good with that? All right. Every instance where you find the word demon-possessed or demon-oppressed, the Greek word is demonizomai, which is interesting. So I would get rid of using demon-possessed or demon-oppressed and just say demonized. Demonized. Someone is demonized. They are under the influence of an evil spirit, a demon, a devil, whatever. And going further, in looking at the actual Greek verbiage, there are several ways that the New Testament talks of having a demon. One way is is of the the common use of the verb echo, echo, which means to hold, to have, or to accompany, followed by the direct object of the verb, which are the nouns, the noun forms of demons. Uh, this particular verb, I know you feel like, man, I'm not. Well, why are we in grammar class? I, just stick with me. It's, this is very academic, but it's good for us to understand this while we're talking about spiritual warfare. This particular verb is the same word used to say that Mary was pregnant with Jesus or that John the Baptist had a camel, a camel hair coat or that people had a sickness. For example, Matthew 5.23 says that if anyone has something, same verb, against you, Leave your gift at the altar and go and make it right. In reference to Mary, she possessed the baby. The baby didn't possess Mary. Or in John's case, John possessed a camel hair coat. The camel, the camel hair coat did not possess John. Or the person with the sickness possessed the sickness. Or the person with offense, they possessed the offense. The, the offense didn't possess them. It's one thing to possess a demon, and it's another thing to, for a demon to possess you. Does that make sense? Okay. Therefore, whenever you see the term demon possession or possessed by a demon, this is an interpretation. A more accurate translation is demonization, which means you have a demon. A demon doesn't have you. There's a big difference between having a demon and a demon having you, especially because a believer cannot be owned by the kingdom of darkness. Yeah, amen. So the question isn't, can a Christian be possessed or oppressed, the question really is, can a Christian be demonized? Is that your answer, Clay? Are you you agreeing with me? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So the question is, can a Christian be demonized? And again, I will stop every now and then and say, this should not scare you. This is not to scare you. This is to inform you so that you will actually call upon the the commands of Scripture to suit up in the full armor of God and to to, to move in an offensive in who you are called to be. Amen? So here's how I'm going to set up this sermon. I'm going to look at from both sides of it. This is how I approached it. I looked and studied everything I could find of those who say, absolutely not, a Christian cannot be demonized, people and men and women that I really respect, scholars teachers, preachers, uh, uh, Greek scholars, everybody I could on, you can't be demonized as a Christian. And then we're going to look at everything else that says, you can be demonized, all right? And I'm, I'm not going to, again, I'm not, this is not going to be exhaustive. I'm, I just, I cherry picked their, their, their strongest arguments, and I'm going to lay them before you. And I think a couple of them, surprisingly, the two that they stand on uh, bother me the most because they're, they're not used in context. And, and one of the dangerous things about topical preaching uh, is you can have, I mean, a pastor can be really passionate about something, and then they find passages of Scripture that are out of context to push whatever they're trying to say. That's, that is dangerous. Not that topical preaching is dangerous. That's okay. I mean, we're doing it right now. We're talking about spiritual warfare. But you have to use Scripture within the context that it's written. And so I'm just going to lay before you a couple of the arguments that say a Christian cannot, cannot be demonized. And I will tell you, I was on this side of the, the fence not too long ago. That is full transparency. I, if you would have told me three years ago, four years ago, that a Christian can be demonized, I would have told you you're out of your mind, and I would have argued with you from some of these points. So bear with me. Again, this is not to throw uh, dirt on either side, right? There's going to be people in this room. This is not a topic to break fellowship over. If you think a Christian can be demonized, awesome. If you don't think a Christian can be demonized, talk to me later. But it doesn't mean that we need to break fellowship, <laughs> It doesn't, need, doesn't mean that we walk away from each other. That this is not a, a primary issue. But bear with me. So the first little set I want to walk through, it, just the, the two main objections to a Christian being demonized or indwelt by a demon. Number one is that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so a demon cannot be there. The scripture they use, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 19 and 20, it says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body which is an awesome verse yeah amen we were bought at a price so glorify god in your body the issue here is this is addressing sexual immorality if you look at the scripture before and the scripture after this verse paul is addressing Some issues going on within the Corinthian church regarding sexual immorality. It has nothing to do with demons. So therefore, we cannot take it and try to use it in this argument. It has everything to do with sexual immorality and nothing to do with demons. Number two, it says, how can light and darkness dwell together? This is one of the big arguments, that light and darkness cannot dwell together. They use 2 Corinthians 6, verse 15. What accord has Christ with uh, Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Uh, believe it or not, this is one of the scriptures they use as one of their main objections to, the, to, to a Christian being demonized. And again, if you look at the context of what's being said here, you will quickly realize that Paul is addressing uh, people being unequally yoked. A Christian and an unbeliever getting married is a no-no. He's saying, what, what portion do they have? What portion does a believer and an unbeliever have? And he goes on to say, do not be unequally yoked. So this has everything to do with being unequally yoked and nothing to do with demons. Now, I want to give you a couple of other objections uh, because those were really quick. Uh, and again, I'm not going to read all the scripture tied to each of these, uh, but I will send them out. Number one, Nate uh, referred to this last week, the defeat of Satan. So this camp points to the biblical text that described the defeat of Satan, specifically John 12, 31 and 16, uh, Colossians 2, Hebrews 2, 1 John 3. Not going to read all that. You can read it later. Uh, I'm giving you tons of material for quiet times this week, so enjoy it. This argument is that if Satan has been judged, stripped, and his work destroyed, how can he or his demons indwell a believer? But these passages do not by themselves settle this issue. Let me Let me continue. If, if, if it is true that Jesus has bound the strong man, which Satan is referred to as a strong man, but, is, <clears throat> but it is equally the case that Satan can exhibit a significant influence in the lives of believers. Examples, uh, and again, this is examples to, to kind of refute what I just said. It, again, he, they say, if Satan has been defeated and stripped and judged, like how can he have any effect in the life of of a believer, immediately what comes to my mind is, if he has no, no power or effect in our lives, why would Paul spend time in Ephesians 6 saying, suit up in the full armor of God and stand firm that you may extinguish the fiery darts of the devil and the schemes of the devil? What are those? If, if he has no power, no effect, and no, and no influence in our lives, why would we be asked to suit up in the full armor of God? I can tell you, it wasn't to walk around looking pretty. It was that we would make war, that we would be protected from an attack, from an onslaught of demonic attack. That's why Paul said what he said in Ephesians chapter 6. Again, Paul warns us, uh, this is just another example that kind of refutes this argument. Paul warns us uh, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? It's against principalities and powers and forces of this present darkness, And then just a practical example, Satan hinders, if you remember in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, where Paul says, uh, this is where Paul is, is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, he said, I wanted to come over and over, but Satan hindered us. Why would he say that if Satan had no power to affect us or have no influence over us? It's just an example of, this is a weak point that we can't pull this conclusion that, man, if, if this is true, we can't be demonized. I would say that there's plenty of examples. I've only give, I only just gave you three, but I'm, I am started feeling passionate about talking about it. I could just keep going. Of, of Even New Testament examples of people being affected and afflicted by the enemy. The point here is simple, that the reality of Satan's defeat does not eliminate his activity or influence in this present age. Number two, so that was Satan's defeat. They would, a, lot of, a lot of people will say, you can't be demonized because Satan has been defeated. And I would have... Probably agreed to most of that, Uh, but I certainly would have agreed, and I have argued this before. And I feel bad; I need to go back and make make right what I didn't. Uh, Number two, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I I used to stand strong on this one. Uh, They would say we can't be demonized because we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The argument is a demon cannot enter or dwell within a believer because he because the Holy Spirit lives there. Since the Spirit is greater and more powerful than any demon. There is no possibility that a demon would be granted access into a Christian's life. Does anyone resonate with this one? Yeah? Even talking about it makes me, rem- I, I, I used to be there. And this is, a, this is one of the strong things that, that they'll, they'll, they'll bring as an objection to Christians being demonized. But, is the protection against demonic invasion automatic? And that's a question to you. Is the Is the protection from demonic invasion automatic? No, it's not. What if a believer grieves the Holy Spirit through repeated and unrepentant sin? What if the believer fails to faithfully and prayfully put on the full armor of God? What is to happen then? If we're charged to put on this armor, what happens if we don't? We get hurt. Things happen. We leave ourselves vulnerable. I want to turn to a scripture that is used uh, by, the, by this camp over here that says we can't be demonized because we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 5 verse 4, for you are not a God who, de- who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Mm. Mm. Does this text really mean to suggest that God cannot dwell alongside of an evil spirit inside of a person? The two lines in verse four are synonymous parallelism. That is, evil may not dwell with you is simply another way of saying that God does not delight in wickedness. The point is not that God cannot be close in spatial proximity to evil. We must not forget that God is omnipresent. This is something that came up so many times in my mind uh, when I was doing this study. is the fact that God is everywhere. And if demons are anywhere, God is there. So this idea that they can't dwell together is, is really a lie, because our God is omnipresent. He's here right now with us, and if there's evil in our city, he's among the evil in our city, because he's omnipresent. He is everywhere, and is close to everything that is good and that is evil. The point of this passage is simply that God detests evil and has no fellowship with it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21. This is another passage that is commonly used, and it'll actually be used again uh, here in a couple of minutes to actually be on this side of the camp. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So First Corinthians 10:21, "You cannot drink a cup of the Lord and a cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons." The cannot, this is so crucial, circle this, underline this in your Bible, the cannot used there in Paul's language refers to a moral, not a metaphysical impossibility. Amen. So if I say that, you know, maybe uh, someone, someone in our church comes to me and says, man, I, I'm really like contemplating committing adultery. And I say, but you cannot do that. What I'm, say, what I'm not saying is you physically cannot do that. They physically can do that. But what I'm saying is, as a believer, morally and spiritually, it's incompatible with your faith in Jesus Christ. You committing adultery is incompatible, morally and spiritually. In other words, you cannot expect to enjoy a close intimacy with Christ and simultaneously give yourself to the influence of demons. Amen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to, this, this is a quote that I, I ran across. I'm just, this is going to sum up our time in this camp, and then I'm going to spend a couple minutes over here, and then we're really going to just drive drive some things home. But this is uh, something that really, really hit me as I read it, Uh, and I'll I'll leave his name out, but he says this, it strikes me that the force of these arguments, and and he's summing up a lot of the arguments that I've actually covered, and and even more. He says, it strikes me that the force of these arguments appear to be more emotional than biblical. The idea of the Holy Spirit and a demon, demon living inside of a believer is just too close, too intimate. The thought of it is emotionally provocative and scandalous. It violates a sense of our spiritual propriety. The feeling is that God simply wouldn't allow it, right? I used to be there, man. I used to think God just wouldn't do that. That's just not who he is. I'm his son. He's covered me in the blood of Jesus. I cannot be attacked by a demon that way. Again, the feeling that God just wouldn't allow it, like his love is... His love for his own is too great to let demonic influence get that far. But we, but we must always keep in mind uh, that the only basis for making a decision on an issue such as this uh, is not on what feels right or proper, but what, what Scripture explicitly asserts. Amen? Amen? Now, I'm not calling this game. If you're in the room, I'm not saying that you're, too, you're just overly emotional. I was there, right? And it makes sense why we would feel that way because our God is holy he is just what does a demon have to do with him like man he's victorious and he is but again we have to look at just exclusively what scripture has to say about it not what my feelings have to say about it as a believer of course I'm going to feel that way about the Lord I love him I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of his sons right so let's look at just quickly some arguments that a Christian can be demonized And I understand if some of you are like, man, this whole thing is new to me. You're overwhelming me this morning. I get it. Take the midweek email and just digest it at at your own pace. Um, But I have been three years of blasting into this. Like, I'm excited about it. And again, I'm not trying to overwhelm anyone in the room, but stay with me. So arguments that a Christian can be demonized. There's tons of them, but I'm just going to give you a few this morning. Actually, uh, we just covered the book of Ephesians this past summer, and I'm going to point to a passage in Ephesians 4 Verses 26 and 27, and I want us to spend some time there. I want to dissect some of the, the, uh, the Greek and that, and I think it's going to kind of open our minds to something that Paul is trying to say here. So in verse 26 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. This is a really important passage for here we see what might happen should the devil exploit just relational tensions within the Christian fellowship? right? Even between us. There's some of you that may have anger towards someone else in the room. I pray that by the end of this little conversation, you will repent of that and go and make things right. Give no room for the devil. One scholar points out that the devil is not credited with producing anger, which is interesting. Uh, that is, its sources apparently are to be found within the person. We, so the devil's not credited here for the one creating anger in us. That's us, right? We get angry. Nevertheless, anger can provide the devil with an opportunity to wreak havoc in the life of the individual and the community. And it seems reasonable that Satan's activity in this regard would extend to the other sins mentioned in the immediate, uh, the, the immediate text right after uh, verses 27, which includes stealing, unwholesome speech, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, malice, and unforgiveness. It's important to point. It's this is this is where I really want to hone in on this verse. It's important. It's important, jeez. It's important to point out that. And I, I'm reading a lot of my manuscript today, so I apologize. I'm usually like all over the stage spitting at everybody, but I, I need. I want. I don't want to mess this up. I spent too much time. I'm just going to read it, and we'll engage. We'll engage later. It's important to point out that Paul's use of the word opportunity. Circle that word opportunity, in your Bible. It's the Greek word tapas, translated foothold. This word is often used in the New Testament for inhabited place or inhabited space. And that's important. Example, Luke 2, verse 7. Mary, gives, he, Mary gave birth to Jesus and laid him in a manger because there was no room or no tapas in the inn. There was no place to put Jesus Or Luke 4.37, when Jesus healed the man in Capernaum, and a word about what Jesus did spread to every tapas, every location, every place. What Jesus did was was talked about in every tapas, every place or location. Other passages that use the word tapas refer to inhabiting space of an evil spirit, such as uh, Luke 11.24, where he talks about, when you cast one out, it goes to a waterless place, a, a tapas, a, a location, and it talks about it, it finds the place put back in order, and it brings seven other spirits more strong than itself uh, uh, and, and does even more damage. Or in Revelation 12, verses 7 and 8, that I love, that Nate pointed out last week, that Satan is defeated, and, and there was no longer a tapas for him in heaven. There was no longer a place for Satan and his, and his followers in heaven, and they were cast out. Therefore, the most natural way to interpret the use of tapas in Ephesians four twenty seven is the idea of an inhabited space. Paul is thus calling these believers to vigilance and moral purity, so they do not relinquish a base of operation to the demonic spirits. So he's saying, Be angry, but do not sin, do not give tapas to the devil, do not give a foothold, do not give an inhabited space in you to the devil. In other words, sin gives the enemy a foothold or an opportunity to occupy space in your life. And, and my quick just charge to you is don't give him space. Don't give the enemy space in your life. Kill sin. Be vigilant about it. There is nothing in Scripture that says, hey, it's okay if you sin. Like, you know, God loves you. Yeah, He does love you. But He also tells you in His Word be crazy, vigilant about this, cut it off. Give the enemy no place, no tapas in your heart or in your life. Everyone here should be familiar with Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, as we just preached on this. Nate preached on this in August and did a fantastic job. In this passage, Paul's passionate exhortation is that we put on the forearm of God to prepare ourselves for the onslaught of demonic attack. But, like we asked earlier, what happens to the believer? who does not stand in the strength of Christ, who does not put on the armor of God, who does not therefore stand firm. You guys remember Nate screaming that? Stand firm! Stand firm! What happens to those of you who don't? And you just take sin casually and you just kind of go about life. Who are left vulnerable. Who leave tapas for the devil in your life. Let me just look at a couple of, of examples in Scripture. Again, this is for this side of the camp that says Christians can be demonized. One of them is found in Luke 13, uh, verses 10 through 17. This is the story of the woman who was doubled over or bent over. Right? And doing further uh, research this week, I cannot pronounce the condition that, that modern doctors say that she had, but it's where your spine, where uh, your vertebrae are fused together. So he encounters this uh, woman. But the question is, was she a believer? As soon as she was, this spirit was cast out of her and she was healed, the scripture says that she immediately glorified God. Doesn't give us any proclamation of the gospel. She just began to, to glorify the Lord after being delivered. And is called, also she is called a, a daughter of Abraham in verse 16. And a cross reference to that in Luke nineteen nine. 9. Uh, but again, was she demonized? is a question. The NSAB, which is kind of a literal translation read, says she had a sickness caused by a spirit, whereas the original Greek reads, she had a spirit of sickness or of infirmity, which is similar to the language of demonization, to have a spirit. How about the story of Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts 5? This is a story that has always confused me, um, and it's still confusing me. Certainly, they both were believers, right? It seems unlikely that the example of their deaths would have any relevance for the church if they were not. Were they demonized? It's, Satan, is to, Satan is said to have filled their hearts, if you remember that. For those of you who don't know anything about the story of Anastasia, Fire, so this is when the, the early church birth. This is when the church began. And they began, the believers, uh, among the ecclesia, the coinea, they started to sell possessions and to, to give to those that were in need. Whatever the church needed, they sold their stuff, and they, and they made sure that the church was provided for. Does, does that ring a bell? And this, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a, a portion of their property, they sold their property, and they kept a portion to themselves. And they told the apostles that they were giving all that they had. And Peter literally says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. So, uh, I mean, the story ends tragic. I'm not trying to scare you in, like, holding back from the Lord, but Ananias and Sapphira, they literally were sentenced with death. They died on the spot. Um, so, again, Satan is, he is said to have filled their hearts. What's interesting is the verb uh, filled there is the same verb that is used in Ephesians 5.18 when, when, it, when it says that uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So in the same way that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira, these believers, were filled with the devil. It's interesting. Uh, but did Satan fill them with himself, or did Satan fill, them, you know, fill their hearts with temptation or the idea or notion to hold back the money? At minimum, this is the case of a believer coming under powerful satanic influence. Notwithstanding Satan's influence, they were... You know they were responsible for their sin and they were disciplined to death. The point is that uh, they could have said no to Satan's influence. They could have said no, and and stood firm against what the enemy was doing in their life. Now let me let me use one more scripture. And again, that this we're kind of we're kind of coming to an end here uh, on the case for Christians can be demonized. This one is interesting, uh, and is a special case that probably comes as close to any text p- to providing us explicit evidence that that a christian can be demonized and it's found in first corinthians uh, chapter 10 verses 22 or 14 through 22 and this is actually i pointed to this earlier this is a text that the other camp uses uh, to say that christians can't be demonized Uh, but in the full context this camp over here says this tells us that a christian can be demonized so verse 14 let's just read it together therefore my beloved flee from idolatry i speak As to sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's talking about communion that we take as a church, saying when we drink that cup, are we not participating in remembrance of the blood of Christ? And when we break and eat the bread, are we not participating in the body that is broken for us in in, in the body of Christ? Verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice's participants in the altar? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So Paul urgent, urgently warns the Corinthians against participating in pagan feasts and then turning to the fellowship of the Lord's Supper in the meeting of the local church. Clearly, the apostle thought it was possible for Christians to become a participant or a partner with demons. The word used here is koinia. You guys have heard that word before. Typically used to describe fellowship or communion with a person or a thing. So he's talking about sitting at the table of demons and communing with them, participating in, sharing in uh, the table of demons. It is the same word used in 16 for sharing or participating or entering into fellowship with Christ at his table. Paul's point seems to be that when we sit uh, to worship at the table of the Lord or conversely in the presence of idols. You open yourself up to the power and influence one or the, to one or the other. There is a sharing of an intimate spiritual experience and association of sorts, a relationship that is personal and powerful. So I, I would say this uh, as we sort of come to an end. Can we all agree that Christians can be attacked? Okay. Can we agree that Christians can be tempted? Okay. How about oppressed and devoured? Yes, these are things I'm, I'm pulling things straight from the scripture. What about led into grievous sin? Yeah. Yes, Satan can fill our hearts to lie. He can exploit our anger. He can deceive our minds with false doctrines. The question then is this: Does all of this that I just that you said yes to, does it just take place outside of our bodies, outside of our minds? Or could it arise from a demon dwelling within? Okay. Some of y'all seem convinced. If I were to tell you, let me just say this. uh, To those of you that are probably, you know, at this point you're like, man, I'm freaking out. Because you're starting to convince me. I'm starting to see that maybe uh, this idea of a demon can actually indwell in me. And some of you are wondering, man, does my neighbor have a demon? Uh, I don't want to make light of this because it's serious. Uh, give me one second. My shouldn't rely on technology. But <clears throat> to those of you that I feel, like maybe, you've, maybe some fear has just like kind of started to come up and some anxiety, your, test is, your chest is getting tight and you're wondering, man, what's going on? Let me just say this. Uh, I'm gonna tell you, I think, personally, as your, I think a Christian can be demonized. And I, I say that based on my, my study of Scripture and, and looking at both sides of the table. I believe, and not only what I see in Scripture, but in the past three years, what I have experienced with people I know are born-again believers who have been demonized, that I have taken part in helping deliver. Uh, and again, we started from this, the, the very beginning. We don't build our spiritual warfare. We don't build that doctrine based on experience. So I'm holding my experience over here. And scripture says this, the driving force that leads me to say Christians can be demonized is what I believe scripture is saying here, teamed with what I've experienced and what I've seen. But let me say this, if if I'm telling you that a Christian can be demonized, uh, that might frighten some of you. But if I tell you that when you leave Phoenix today, you could get hit by a car on the sidewalk, I don't think that's going to scare a lot of you. I think it's just going to, It's going to be in your mind, and you're going to think, oh, well, I'm just not going to walk in traffic, right? It's going to lead you to make wise decisions when you leave Phoenix. You're not just going to walk out in the middle of traffic. You don't walk in the middle of a busy street. You don't live in constant worry or fear because because of the possibility of getting hit by a car someday in front of Phoenix. If a car jumps over the curb and starts to chase you, run in the building and find protection, and the car will crash into the building, and you'll be safe. All right. Likewise, if it's possible for a Christian to be demonized, do not be afraid. Rather, follow steps outlined in Scripture and employ the protection made available to you by the Holy Spirit. And if the demon continues to chase you, run to the foot of the cross and find your refuge in Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. I told you, don't half commit when you do those things. So here's some next steps regarding this whole idea of of demonization and Christians being demonized. Uh, One of the things that this should not lead to is an increased need for deliverance. And instead of an increased, and by the way, I don't, we're going to talk about deliverance in a couple of weeks, and deliverance is a beautiful thing, right? This is where Jesus exercises his authority over the demonic and it flees. But this should not lead to an increased need for deliverance but instead an increased amount of those walking in truth and in faith and authority. That's what it should lead to. You guys should not leave this room thinking, oh dear, I could be demonized, oh dear. You should be walking out of this room saying, man, I'm going to commit to suit up in the full armor of God. I'm going to commit to devour the word of God. I'm going to commit to step in my authority. I'm going to commit to live in who Jesus has made me to be. So to the person that asked the question, uh, again, this is another question that was submitted. Can a Christian be demonized or demon-possessed? No to the possession and yes to the demonization, all right? Yes, it's possible. And again, I point back to we would not be led to, to actually take charge and to stand firm and to suit up if we just lived on a playground instead of a war zone. Like we live on a battlefield, not a playground, and we need to treat it that way. And the beautiful part is, we're victorious. We're on the side that wins. Read the book. Like, we are on the winning team. And so you should not fear. In fact, I'm not trying to turn you into demon hunters. That's not who you're called to be, but you are called to step in your authority. If you find somebody that is demonized, you find somebody struggling, man, take authority and minister to them. It doesn't take some guy that says, hey, pay me $99 a month and I'll cast that demon out. Like, Lose that dude's number. Like, you don't need those people. People try to exploit stuff and try to make money off of, off of Jesus. And what I read in the scripture is, what authority do you have? I don't know. What authority did Jesus have? That's what authority you have. And I'm speaking to the women in the room. I'm speaking to the men in the room. I'm speaking to any born-again believer in the room, young or old. You don't need some specialized black ops, whatever, Christian. They need you. You carry the same spirit within you that they do. And that spirit will run from that same spirit. So let me just read this last passage over you. Um, Or just just some thoughts from Luke 10, uh, and, and then we'll close. So in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. You guys remember this story, right? And this is probably one of my favorite chosen, uh, if you've not watched The Chosen, spoiler alert, but this is one of my favorite, like, it's the next episode, he sends them out, and it's the next episode where they do, like, the recap of them out, you know, doing ministry, and they're casting out demons and healing people, and just their faces of like, oh, dude, it worked, and they're like, (laughs) just seeing that, like, I'm weeping, oh, like, that's what we're supposed to be doing, like, it just fired me up, like, Lord, send me, I'm ready, but he sends out, in Luke 10, he sends out the 72, it's important to know this. They're not apostles. These 72 are not apostles. They're not elders. They're not seminary grads. They're, not, they're just average followers of Jesus, and most of them unnamed, completely unnamed. I love that. And he commissions them to go to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And when they return, we read down in verse 17 of Luke 10, it says, So they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And of course, Jesus says to them, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nothing shall hurt you. And of course, serp- uh, serpents and scorpion is an Old Testament uh, language for demonic spirits. Nothing shall hurt you. We are those 72, right, that he sends out with power to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to deal with anything that gets in the way nothing shall hurt you so what do we do this week what do we do this week next step Ben you can come on up you guys can go ahead and stand with me where does that leave us where do we go from here Some of you, you need to take all the scripture I'm going to send you, and you need to make a decision for yourself. Can a Christian be demonized? Can a Christian not be demonized? You decide for yourself. But here is something that uh, we, no matter what you read, we have authority, and we have responsibility in this earth. We have responsibility to to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to tread on scorpions and serpents, to keep to cast out demons. But this week, I'm just going to simply ask this. As you guys, first of all, doing a daily quiet time for some of you may be a challenge. And so I'm going to ask first and foremost that you would spend time every day with the Lord and that you would call upon Ephesians 6 and you would intentionally say, God, in this moment, I want to put on the helmet of salvation. Just walk through the armor and put it on and ask him to give you eyes to see what he's doing around you. That's it. That's all I want you to do this week is when you get with the Lord, I want you to be intentional about putting on the full armor of God and giving the devil no tapas in your heart or in your mind. Some of you, I know you, and I talk to you, and I minister to you all the time, and it seems like there's there's repeated habitual sin or other issues in your life. Give the enemy no tapas in your life. It is time to say no more to the enemy. This week, every morning you get up, I don't care if you're a morning person or not, don't, if you're a night owl, don't do this at night. I want you to do it when you wake up in the morning. Because you do it before you go to sleep. You, you sleep it and you forget it when you wake up and you go about your day. When you wake up, when your feet hit the floor, I want you to pray the full armor of God over yourself. Husbands, I want you to pray it over your, your wives and your children. Wives, I want you to pray it over your husband and your children. Singles, I want you to pray it over yourself and your roommates. It is time for us to suit up and to take this thing serious because the enemy is wreaking havoc in the city of Athens and all over the world. But we don't have anything to fear. We have the power play. It's just time for us to move in that direction and say, yeah, I do have victory. And so here's the deal. If during worship, if if you're that one that's like, man, I have some sin that I've given the enemy atop us in my life, come repent of it. The weapon that we have is the gift of repentance. We can slay the enemy with repentance. We give him no foothold. And by the way, next week, we're going to look at all of the ways that we can give enemies space in our life. Generational sin, curses, footholds, strongholds. We're going to look at all of that stuff and see what scripture has to say about it. But in the meantime, if you know there's a foothold in your life that you've given the enemy, get rid of it. Repent of it and say, I want nothing else to do with this. I'm fully Jesus's. So, Father, here we are. Whether the enemy can demonize us or not which I I believe your word says that they can. But that does not make me fearful. It just tells me that there's an enemy out to steal, kill, and destroy. He's out prowling like a lion, looking to devour the one who doesn't suit up, the one who doesn't take his sins serious, the one that's apathetic or just casual about his Christianity. I pray in Jesus' name that apathy would would flee from this room. God, that the spirit of religion would lift off of people in this room. That they would see you for who you are. They would see themselves rightly. They would see themselves for what you say they are. Not for what the world says they are. What that says they are. Lord, you're the only one that gets to put labels on us. And you call us a son. You call us a masterpiece. Your wonderful handiwork. Your poema. Let us start acting that way, God. And allow us as a faith family to push back darkness within our own lives and in this city, God. We want to see people redeemed. We want to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And we know when we do that, we will face resistance. Man, whether it's an extreme Mark 5 demoniac or it's something simple like Mark 8 where Peter just, man, he's, he's tempted by the thoughts that aren't his own. Give us clear minds. Allow us to... Lord, not be transformed, Lord, by all the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we would we would set our minds on you and we would devour your word. And God, would you just give us some boldness in the room today? If we need to repent of sin, can we do that? Can we just get rid of that with no shame, that we would run to the altar and just hand things to you, giving the enemy zero tapas, no foothold, no inhabited spaces in our lives? Man, I pray that for our church in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Phoenix Athens podcast. Be on the lookout for the next step challenges and bonus episodes. You can find additional ways to engage with our church on Facebook, Instagram, and our website linked below.